You're listening to Unscripted with Alex, a podcast that empowers young families to make choices that are best for them and their children. Hello, Edwina. Hi. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on to Unscripted with Alex today and chat with us about your birth story and your amazing project that you've got. We're going to talk a lot about the postpartum body and learning to love and celebrate it and how you're doing this with um, a body of art project. Before we dive into that though, can you tell me a little bit about your pregnancy journey? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me on. It is such an honor to speak with you. I am truly honored. Um, My pregnancy, whoo! It was a a big one. I thought I would be the type of woman where I would become pregnancy. It would, I would be one with the experience. It was just, I had been baby prepping for like six months. I had come off coffee, any stimulants. I had detoxed my body. I was like, this is going to be, is going to be a walk in the park, right? It wasn't. I ended up getting hypermesis gravidarum. So I was sick my entire pregnancy. So from like, I think it was four weeks to 42 weeks, I was sick. And it was the hardest, most like world, soul, earth shattering experience of my life. And I remember having such a tough time surrendering to having to rest and not attaching all of those stories of, you know, you should be doing more than just growing a child. Like... (laughs) I was, I really, really struggled with not being able to work. I really, and at the time I was a musician, I was a singer. So throwing up every single day and being a singer literally is the worst combination you could possibly ask for because my vocal cords were so swollen. I couldn't sing before I couldn't make money with like, it was such a, it was a really tough time. And that on top of, we had a bit of a rough start with our pregnancy in regards to After the 12-week scan, we got told that Fergus had come back high risk for Down syndrome. Um, And so we got the Harmony test. And so we had to wait that, like, what, nine or 10 days between when you're told that your child might have a disability to if they do or not. Um, And I remember them being like, you have a one in 50 chance of your child having Down syndrome. And for someone my age and really healthy, it's usually like one in 40,000. So it was like really confronting to have to be like, okay, what, what would be our choice? Where would we go forward? And just even the language that they were using, they were like, you know, you might want to terminate. And I was like, don't put decisions in my mouth. Um, and so we had that experience of then being told that he was fine. And it was just like, it was such a rough journey of having to surrender into this unknown period of time and having to go to hospital when I had been throwing up so much. And I got, I developed like what pregnancy hives. So every night at a particular time, my body would like break out into hives. I, Oh man, you really not, not a smooth pregnancy at all. It was so tough. It was it was so tough. And I remember making it to 40 weeks because we had planned a home birth. And so I had spent every single day picturing, like visualizing my home birth. And we got to 40 weeks and I was like, pregnancy, this has been great. I've learned so much. I'm ready to move on to the next journey and for it to be a really beautiful experience. And then I was 42 weeks by the time I went into labor. Towards the end, it's pretty hard. You're getting pretty uncomfortable. And then you've already got the nausea and the hives and everything else that you've just gone through. And I had already had like the um, pubis symphysis pain, so I couldn't even walk. Like, oh, Lord, when I think about it, I'm just like, would not probably do again. Like, (laughs) I made it through. But that every – I felt it was the hardest – well, what I thought was going to be the hardest part of my experience and – boy, did I set myself up for failure with that one because our birth didn't go to plan either. Plan. Rough, rough guide plan. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I was pretty good with being like, I'll surrender. I'll surrender. But then I just had to keep surrendering. It felt like everything about my journey into motherhood has been like, you think you have surrendered? 
let's test that. You think you've surrendered. Let's push you even further to what you think your edge is. Do you know what? On that point, women are capable of so much. We don't even realize what we are able to do mentally and physically and emotionally. Like you said, you get pushed to the edge and you think that's your limit, but you can get pushed even further. And it's really testing for a lot of women. Maybe that time to slow down comes after you've given birth or even in the last trimester. But for you, that was really tested and pushed very early on that you had to stop and rest. And that is hard to deal with. It literally just felt like I'd lost a whole year to growing a child. And in a society where they don't really celebrate you for growing a human, I really battled with feeling like unproductive and not a youthful member of society. And that was definitely the, it's like I hadn't earned my time to rest. It was forced upon me. When you say those words, I'm growing a human, that is massive. That is the biggest task. It is the biggest blessing. And it is something that should be allowed to, you know, for us to rest and celebrate and do that one job. Cause that's a big job. <laughs> biggest job in the world. Like, oh, I wish that I wish that men got to experience pregnancy because I think the world would be very different. <laughs> at least the decision makers, which are all mainly men. Let's just make all them at least have a bit of an understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So um, from the 42 week mark, I want to hear what were those early signs that you were going into labor? Were you, were they trying to force an induction on you? What was that whole process? So I think it was probably at around 41 weeks that I had to go back in and have another ultrasound to check that there was still enough fluid. I was adamant I was not going to have an induction. I was pretty happy on sailing into the sunset and waiting until he was ready. So I thought, <laughs> I was like, I'll wait forever. You get to like 41 and four and you're like, wow, I've been here for long enough. So I started getting labor induction acupuncture. So I think I had that like three days in a row. <laughs> and I think that really kicked things off by the third day because I think it was a Friday that I started feeling more consistent tightenings. It wasn't nothing like a full contraction, but I was like, okay, stuff's happening. I never really was aware that I lost my mucus plug. My water never broke. So on Saturday... I was lying on the couch all day because I was getting really inconsistent contractions by then. Um, and so I lay down most of the day, just watched Harry Potter. It was great. And then it was at 1am on Sunday morning that I woke up and I was like, oh, okay. Like this is, this is definitely different. I started timing all my contractions and I did what my doula said to do. She was like, stay in bed till you cannot stay in bed anymore. So I think I was in bed from one until probably three, just breathing through my contractions. I think at that stage there were like every six or seven minutes. Um, and so then we moved out into the lounge room and we really just like stayed out there for a while. Like it felt like the first half of my labor was great. Like I, you know, it's intense and it's the most intense thing of my life, but we didn't know at that point that there was something that was going wrong. I remember it was probably at like nine o'clock in the morning where things had been really getting intense and then they just kind of dropped off. And so my midwife sent us out for a walk and it was raining. So we live near like a little forest. And so we had our raincoats on and we are like walking through this forest and it was in the forest at one of those first like really big contractions comes and I am just like not screaming but I'm definitely very loudly yelling in the forest just pulling my partner to the ground <laughs> and so we slowly make our way back to our house and every like three minutes by that stage I am just like roaring <laughs> out in public just people driving by just raining <laughs> and we get back and she was like okay so that did exactly what we wanted it to do which was to like move labor along um, and she was making me do lunges down the hallway, squats. It was such an active labor to keep things moving. And then I think it by midday, we really were like, okay, I think he's ready. And so we hop into the pool and it was when we got into the birthing pool, that was the first moment that I was like, there's something that's not right. 
there's something that's not right. For the size of the contraction that I was experiencing, he, I couldn't feel him at all. Like he, I remember her asking to me to see if I could feel his head. I couldn't feel anything there. It was, and I remember saying that I was scared because I did, I didn't know how to push. And in hindsight, like I, like he, he was stuck. So it turned out that he was, he was obstructed. So his head was up and to the side. Um, which meant his head was getting stuck on like part of my cervix and I wasn't able to dilate anymore. My body was like, everything's great. Everything's great. Meanwhile, poor little dude is getting pushed and pushed and pushed into a more stuck position. Um, so my midwife and my doula, their wealth of knowledge of trying to shuffle him was just, we tried everything, literally everything under the sun that we possibly could to move his head and get it get it aligned. We did rebozo work. We did squats and lunges. I had to hold certain stretches through these giant contractions. It was so intense having to hold like a psoas release stretch through, I think it was 10 minutes. So there was like two, three or four contractions in that time. Had to do that on both sides. I think we, we tried everything for like three or four hours and I was throughout my labor, still throwing up. (laughs) I couldn't keep anything down. It was tough. So I think by five or six in the evening, we were, I was getting to a point where I just so desperately wanted to rest. I was exhausted, like absolutely exhausted. And so how many hours are we at now? 18, I think. Yeah. I think it was 15, 15, 16, 17 hours. That, that, That little period then was where we were like, okay, I don't think he's going to move. We have used everything in our knowledge to try and help him. We also broke my waters um, to see if that would help. And that was kind of when we saw that the waters were a bit brown. So we knew that there was like muconium. We tried another set of stretches and we made the decision that if nothing had changed after this next half an hour to 40 minutes, um, that we would transfer into hospital. I live in a country town. So I live in Margaret River. So we knew, and my midwife was amazing, that the hospital that would give us the best care would be in Bunbury, which is about an hour and 15 minute drive. I hadn't packed a hospital bag. Like I had prepared for everything, yet we hadn't packed a hospital bag, right? Wasn't in the plan. It wasn't in the plan. It was not in the plan. But I had written up a, if I had a cesarean, like if for some reason we were having a cesarean, I had a list of things that I wanted. So we had that on us. And so my fiance had been, had not left my side for like, 18 hours. He had done every single exercise with me alongside of me. He was in the pool with me. He was holding me through the stretch. Like he did not leave my side that entire time. He had such a workout as well. The only time he disappeared was when he had to pack my hospital bag. And I remember saying the only way that I'm going to let him leave me is if you put me in the shower. And it was the most like animalistic time of my life was in that shower by myself just on the floor with the water as hot as it possibly could be just with it on my back and that was when I remember everything changed it went from being like a big contraction to my body bearing down oh so you were trying to push yeah like I couldn't stop it it was so and I knew he was stuck like I knew he was stuck. I knew that that pushing down was stressing him out even more and more. And so it suddenly became like, okay, I, I need, I need, we need help. Like we need to go to a hospital now. And so got in the back of the car, was hanging over the back of our car seats with our midwife in a car behind us and our doula in the car behind her flew to the hospital. I think we cut like 25 minutes off that time and we just hit the floor running. And I, was just like between every contraction, I was just praying. I was just wishing and hoping that everything would just stop. Just stop pushing, stop pushing him into a more stuck position. Like I knew he was stressed out. And so we get to the hospital and my midwife and doula thought I was going to give birth in the car park, like in the in the emergency unit, because they could see that my body was like pushing. And he, there's not enough space, he couldn't come through. Um, and so my doula was like, okay, we have to try and stop you pushing. We have to try and direct that energy somewhere else. And so she told me the lip trill, which for a singer is like 
I do that every single day. I do a lip trill every single day. And so I'm, I have this vivid memory of like being wheeled through emergency, hanging onto a pillow, sitting in a, a wheelchair, lip trilling like a crazy. I was, I was really just untethered. <laughs> I was in another world. And that period of time between when we get to the hospital and when I ended up having to get an emergency cesarean just like flew by. Just I, there's a lot that I don't really remember, like it's not really clear to me. But what I do very much remember is them giving me the gas and me, this only time I yelled in my entire labor was telling them that the gas did fuck all. I was like, this does nothing. (laughs) Take this shit away from me. Like, (laughs) yeah, I was like, I've done 20 hours pain free. Give me something better than this. (laughs) I had it by then. And I, it was so, yeah, I was, I was done. And I remember the woman who was coming in to check my dilation and to talk to me was sickly sweet. Like, and catastrophized everything compared to what my midwife had told me the exact same information, but completely differently. So for example, my midwife was like, you are, you're six centimeters, like six, six to seven centimeters dilated. Um, that's what she said. And then this, I don't know what position, I don't know an obstetrician or something like that. Um, she, when she did her check, she was like, you're only six centimeters and you're only this far. And I remember my midwife saying, and there is a small amount of meconium in your waters versus the woman who was like, and I can see that there is a lot of meconium in your waters. So it was very interesting to have the same information presented to you in two completely different ways. And also at that point, there's nothing in the way of her saying it and catastrophizing it. It's not going to change the situation in any way. You were going there to be transferred to have a C-section. So the best thing is to do what your midwife is doing to keep you calm and relaxed and not needing to add those extra little, um, that little detail. And so they hooked me up to the Doppler and that's when then we realized that his heart rate was dropping quite a lot with every contraction. And so we made a decision that for his safety, we needed to get him out quickly. And so we did. We flew us down to like to the um, theatre. It was quite amazing to see how when there is an emergency, how incredible a hospital system is. Like they are a well-oiled machine. I didn't even see the surgeon. Like (laughs) I didn't see him at all. He came in at the last minute, popped his head around. It was wild to me. And we gave birth. And I do remember everyone in theatre was really calm, except for one of the paediatricians who came over to us just before they were going to cut me open, essentially. And she was like, he needs to come out screaming. If he doesn't come out screaming, then we have to immediately take him away. And my fiancé was like, that's okay. Can you just let us know, like keep us in the loop? I was just like, wow, like can people stay calm? This is such an intense experience for me. I've been going for almost 23 hours. I just need some peace. I need the people who are going to be birthing my son essentially to bring that peace and that calm. And so we, they pull him out and he is screaming. Like at the time we were like, yes, he was screaming. He was loud. He looks like, to be honest, he looked like a little sport of Satan. They pull him over the curtain and he's got like a, a lump on the side of his head, covered in blood, looks like a hot mess. But I was just like, oh, he's gorgeous. Like it didn't feel real that I had, he was here. Like I remember when I heard him crying I was, and I hadn't seen him yet. There was such a like, he's here. Like it wasn't just a bag of potatoes in my body for this 10 months. It was the weirdest feeling ever. And I was strapped down. Like I looked like I had been crucified. Like when you have a cesarean, they strap you down and hook you up. And I was also throwing up through that whole process. Like, oh, it didn't let up at all. (laughs) I I remember the the last contraction I ever felt. The anaesthetist was like, you know, for a very small percentage of women, this makes them sick. And I was like, great, great. So they've strapped me down. They've given me the, the spinal. And next minute I was like, guys, I'm going to be sick and I can't move. So I have my head turned and I'm just vomiting all over my hair. So what happened when they pulled Bub out? Did you, um, did they put him straight onto your chest or what was? 
So they pulled him up and then they had to check all of his, like they had to check that he was really healthy. So they immediately took him to his like little corner. They waited a little while to cut the cord for the, um, uh, the umbilical cord, which is something that I had asked for. I'd asked for vaginal seeding as well. Okay. Great. I was going to say, did you do that? Then they weighed him, wrapped him up and they brought him over and they gave him to my, because I was still being sick. So that was the issue is that they couldn't give him to me because meanwhile, I'm vomiting essentially. So they were like, let's give him to dad. Yeah. So they gave him to dad. So I remember lying in, in like in the bed with Cam sitting next to me and I was just like shock and awe, just everything. So they got him onto me as soon as I was not vomiting anymore. And that's essentially where he stayed for hasn't left basically. He has been with me on me ever since essentially. Just for the listeners who don't know what vaginal seeding is, can you explain to them what it is and the benefits of it? Cause it is a fabulous um, process if they can do it. Well, from what I know, when a baby is born vaginally, you, they get a whole bunch of bacteria that is from our body onto theirs through their like little nasal passageways and into their mouth. And it's incredibly good for their like gut microbiome and for their entire like being. And so when the baby is born vaginal, uh, cesarean, they don't get that. And so vaginal seeding is where they take the mucus from inside of your vagina and they essentially put, put it all over him, put it all over the baby just so that they can experience that same benefit as well. That's pretty much all I know of it. Um, I yep. know there's a lot more benefits from it, but I just remember being told if you can get that, that is brilliant. Do you find yourself constantly reaching for sugary foods? It's no secret that eating too much sugar can wreak havoc on your gut health. Not only does it feed bad gut bacteria, but it can also cause inflammation and damage to the gut lining. Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol is here to help. Our simple four-week reset program is designed to remove triggers and unwanted microbes, supporting you through your sugar hangover and repairing the gut. So why wait? Start feeling better today with Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol. Microbiome, but we do build our gut microbiome at least over the first two years. That's a real crucial time in baby's life to, to to develop it, and they'll develop it also through what you did, like skin to skin, is another big one that they can get it from as well. So yeah, there's lots of other little bits and pieces to build up. So Baba eventually got onto your chest. Now this is where your transition into motherhood starts. How did you find the transition? Was it what you expected? Nothing. Like it was, we had a really tough postpartum with Fergus. He had, he basically screamed for the first five months. So poor little baby had a mixture. Well, what we had realized down the line was that he had a whole bunch of birth trauma and just massive feelings. He was born really stressed. So he came out being able to hold his neck up, turning his head, eyes wide open. Like it felt like when he was born, he was born like a tightly wound coil. And so I think we had probably four days of him feeling like a newborn. And then we knew that he was not like your average baby. He would, he hated being put in carriers. Like we never got to wear him. So I never actually got to just wear him. I could never put him in a bassinet because he would scream bloody murder. We never got to use our pram for the first five months. We're exactly the same. Exactly the same. All those things that you think, oh, you go and get the, I remember my mum bought the automatic little rocker and you've got the bassinet and you've got the pram that you're excited to use. And then you've got, you've got all the bits and they don't want any of it. And you're like, hang on, this isn't the picture. (laughs) Yeah. And I'd never, cause all of my friends that had had babies, their babies would just sleep. They would sleep. And Fergus was not that he was so unhappy and uncomfortable and really we, we did everything. We got his tongue ties cause we thought that could be it. So we got them cut like a week after birth. Um, we went to Cairo's osteos, physios, kinesiologists, Bowen therapists. I came off any type of food, which we thought could be upsetting his digestive system. So I ate the same thing for four months straight. Um, 
we got him onto Bailey's, which is like this naturopath um, type of... Like a gut formula? Yeah, gut formula. The only thing that actually made a difference was when we found aware parenting, crying and loving arms. That was the only thing that it changed. It was the hardest thing we ever did with him because it was so intense for us and for him. But listening, like holding him in bed and letting him share his feelings was he slowly unwound. Like we spent hours every single day just listening to him and sharing, allowing him to share how, how he was feeling after we realized that it wasn't anything medical. Like all his basic needs had been met. He just was really upset. Like he just had a lot to share with us and he had a lot to say. And I think that's where people get really uncomfortable because as adults, we have such an unhealthy relationship with negative emotion, negative emotion with emotion, period. We would see him, Fergus getting really frustrated, really like basically he wanted to pop. And so we would immediately take him into the bedroom, sit down on the bed, hold him. And he would scream like he was having, like he was exorcist style. And one of two things would happen at the end. He would finish. He would sit up, like he would look up at us and he would smile, Mm. like smile, like thank, like thank you for listening to me. Thank you for letting me get this out of my nervous system. Thank you for letting me um, get my body, trying to get my body back into homeostasis or two, he would actually sleep deeply. His nervous system was so jacked up that he never got into that deeper sleep. And so it was when we started helping him unwind his nervous system that he actually started allowing us to put him into a carrier he started falling asleep in a carrier. He started falling asleep in a pram. He started falling asleep in a car seat. We could hold him. Like he used to arch himself off us. He didn't want to be touched. Um, and so we did that. And that was the hardest thing we ever did because it involved Cam and I having to have such capacity to listen and to hold space. Like he would cry for an hour before every single nap at when he was like three months old, I think was when we really started working with him on it. Like it would be an hour of us just sitting there and talking to him saying, you're safe. I'm listening. I love you. And he is just <clears throat> screaming, just letting everything out. And it was the most intimate experience I have ever had with anyone in my life of seeing, of just seeing them in their most raw expression and them trusting you enough. And we then had to start, we worked with essentially a birth trauma specialist in aware parenting. And she was saying that, you know, certain parts of the body will hold trauma from their birth. And he used to hold a lot of trauma in his head, of course, because he was getting pushed into that position. And so when he was about three months old, we used to just have to hold his head gently pressing on certain spots and he would pop, he would pop for like, I think it was probably a week we would hold a certain spot and then it didn't bother him anymore because it was done. He'd felt everything. He'd released everything that was attached to that. He'd felt everything fully and it wasn't a problem anymore. And he no longer cried. You could, you could touch him anywhere on his head and he was fine, but it was the most ruthless postpartum experience ever. We didn't leave the house essentially. For you giving him that time to release I just wonder, like, if you hadn't given that time or, you know, we always wonder now as adults when people are going through certain anxieties and and feelings and emotions and we're not sure where it's come from, like, I wonder how often there's trauma or something that's been kept in the body, in our nervous system, because we have that memory in our body from birth. And, you know, by allowing him to work through it all, that's just setting him up for a beautiful life, hopefully. Yeah. And I think because we are so uncomfortable with crying, we do everything in our power to pacify them. Literally give them a dummy. We bounce them on a ball. We distract them. Like we literally do anything. We give them milk or like breast milk all the time. Like, like I fed on demand, but I was also very aware of not feeding him when he was like in the midst of this huge meltdown, which I knew wasn't because he was hungry. He wasn't hungry because I had fed him like he was very well fed. 
And so it was very interesting to be like, he refused to be silenced. And I don't know if all babies do that. Like he, you had to listen to him. We didn't get a choice. Like we tried everything to, before we knew about aware parenting, we tried everything to settle him and nothing would work. We spent months bouncing on that exercise ball with him in our arms. Yeah. I was exactly the same. Like we popped it when we were done with it. Oh yeah. Knife just threw it. Just hated it. Absolutely hated it. To get him to sleep, we used to have to bounce on the ball. He was swaddled, patting his bum, shushing him on the boob. Like it was like we had to do everything to try and distract him from his feelings rather than just letting him feel his feelings and then he would actually sleep. It's interesting because they like to give this a medical term and call it colic and it's been getting done for a long time, which is just ridiculous because colic implies there's a gut thing going on. There's now a new acronym and I think it's called purple face. I think it's more the purple, but it explains more. It's around, you know, the emotions and nervous system. And I think we want to give this a medical (laughs) diagnosis when it's not, it's not anything medically wrong. It's just, it's emotional. It's exactly just needs time and um, listening. And we found very helpful or well, I found very helpful to, um, you know, when you're going, um, getting prepared for your birth and everything, you have your playlists. I had a really nice long playlist and I played that every night. We had, you know, like similar two or three hours of screaming and, I would hold him and walk up and down the hallway for that whole time and we would just play the music and would, we would just listen and I would sing and that was our way of getting through because, yeah, there's not anything you can, anything else you can do really. Yeah, and we used to because I remember people telling me, they were like, oh, our baby just cries for these few hours at night time and ours was like we knew when he woke up at 8 a.m. Once we got out of the shower, it began for us. We had all day all night. It was unrelenting. It sent Cam and I to the edge of our existence. Like it was so tough. And so we literally used to put soundproof headphones on when we were listening to him to try and take, to protect our nervous system as well. Like we didn't play music through him. I remember Cam for a while did <clears throat> because his nervous system was just at the, at an edge, but I used to just put my headphones on as I was holding him just to take a couple of decibels off the crying to protect my nervous system so that I could continue holding space for him. Yeah, because he'll pick up on what you're you're feeling and expressing. So, yeah, trying to keep yourself really calm and, yeah. Yeah, and we would used to swap as well. So Cam and I, if we felt ourselves getting to that, our capacity, we'd swap out and we we literally just would change. So from here, you have started a project, which I really want you to dive deep into. It's a body of art project. and. First of all, um, explain what it is and when you started it and why you started it. So a body of art is this kind of came to me accidentally, but out of necessity just for me, because I think I was probably eight months postpartum and Fergus was well and truly like much happier by then. Um, and it was the first time that I had the opportunity to like look at myself and like reintroduce myself like I, I hadn't looked in a mirror for what felt like months. And I remember scrolling on Pinterest, trying to find non-medical images of cesarean scars. <laughs> I was like, where, where are the beautiful photography of women's bodies who have had cesareans? Like that was my body where, like, why didn't that exist? And then I started seeing all these other beautiful imagery of just women who looked like me sitting comfortably, close-up shots of their body. And I could just, I was, they were so beautiful. And I have dealt with body image issues my entire life. And I was like, why can't I see myself like this? And so I just decided to take photos of myself, like of certain parts of my body, really close up, different angles, not posing, not sucking in, not trying to, like not trying to be anything other than what I was. And I shared my experience with my online platform, which has a lot of mothers in on it. 
And I remember it really resonating with what I was saying and the images that I was showing and that I was trying to see my body as art. And so that night I just had this idea. I was like, wow, I don't want to be a body positive, body positivity uh, influencer. I want to create a space where others can be that, where they can be that can, instead of looking at someone who inspires them, why can't they be their own inspiration? Why can't they see themselves in the way that I see them? And cause that doesn't, there was nothing, there's literally like, there's so many body positivity influences, but there was just nothing that gave us, my, me, myself and I, the opportunity to do that for myself. To be your own muse and your own inspiration. Yeah. Because I think that is what is so much more impactful for a person rather than just seeing someone else that they watch. Why can't they be that themselves? And so I created this just really simple seven day program where we focus on different parts of the body. So day one is feet to knees. Day two is thighs and bottom. Day three is back, belly and breasts. Day four is arms and hands. And day five is shoulders, hair and face. And it was 10 minutes. You had 10 minutes to shoot up to nine photos. Just like, just click, 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 click. It was like, I deliberately was like, you have to do it quickly because one, most of you have kids. So time is of the essence. And two, it's not about posing. It's about exploring what your body can do, how, what the angles that you can do, the shapes it can create, like treating it as if it is a piece of pottery that you are like just exploring. And so I offered, I was like, would you, anyone be interested in joining me in this? Cause I'm going to do it myself. And I had something crazy, like 55 or 60 women on the first round that I ran for free, just join me. And it was like life changing to see the photography that was created by everyday humans. And I was just not, most of us, 95% of the women are not photographers. Like you, yet you see them take photos of themselves and it's just like, you are art. You are spectacular. Like I would look at these images and I would just have my breath taken away. And the best part about it is that they would take their own breath away. They were able to see themselves as I w- I could see them. They was like, wow, I didn't know my body could look this beautiful. And I was like, that that's, that's the money. Like I <clears throat> want you to feel this way about your body. I also want your children to see you love your body. And I want to create something that allows society to see how much variety and diversity there is in what a postpartum body can look like. You gave me goosebumps. <laughs> I got like little goosebumps all down my arms. And so I just decided to run it again. And I, I started like honing, I started creating support pods so that the women could meet each other and be their own hype gals. And I started becoming really clear on what a postpartum body to me was <clears throat> because a postpartum body for me is not just one that ends up with a live child as proof. For me, a postpartum body is anyone who has ever held life inside of their womb, no matter to what gestation and no matter if they chose to end that pregnancy or if they miscarried. And that was really important to me and so happens in the state of the world right now it just it's very important in a world that wants to isolate us I felt like it was my responsibility to create a safe space that was very clearly inclusive um in the sizes in the experiences in the language that I was using um And so that has been really important to me as the program has solidified. And as I've run it two more times there, I learn every single time what is important to me in this project and where I want it to go and what I want it to stand for um, and why I want it to exist. And so it's, it's like this, it's my baby. It feels like my second baby. It's amazing what you're doing there on a platform like Instagram. And so that's a platform where we like to curate things and it needs to have a certain filter or color or look or be to a specific niche. And you're creating a project that has women from all backgrounds with all different situations with all different bodies and unfiltered and that's real life. Have you had trouble with Instagram? Cause they like to ban people for all sorts of silly things. Oh, 
it's why I also have to have certain guidelines for the, um, for the participants because Instagram censorship daddy is hardcore. So every single time I run it day two and three are the days that I struggle. I have to be the most aware of, because even if I blur out nipple or even if I blur out booty, it can still get pinged and it can still get community guideline violations, which I get. I just, you know what the most frustrating part about it is, is a photo gets taken down for no reason. I ask for a review and it gets put back up. (laughs) I'm like, I'm playing by your rules. I'm, I, I know, but because I've had so many community guideline violations, I get shadow banned. So it is really difficult. It's like, the Instagram page itself is quite hidden because of the fact that they remove photos and then they put them back up. And oh. so I have been very clear with the women that, you know, on certain days, like I would recommend wearing underwear or if you are going to go naked, I will have to just for the Instagram versions, I'll have to do some censoring of my likes of myself. But the most frustrating part about that whole experience is the, is when a photo gets taken down the shame that that woman feels for her body immediately being sexualized when she is literally just sitting. It's like, it's, it's so aggravating to me for that a woman who is sitting down, not posing seductively, her body, because it is the way it is, is immediately sexualized. And then Instagram goes, Hey, you're too sexual. Take this away. And then that internalized shame of, it's just like this cycle. What I've noticed is that the curvier you are, the quicker the image I have, like I have to be aware of it because the curvier, like a woman, it's seen as more sexual and more feminine. It's like, it's, it's what I've noticed through the algorithm of like, which photos get pinged. It's not the women that are slimmer and have, um, probably bodies that, are yeah, just slimmer, slimmer with less curves. Um, they don't get pinged in the same way that really voluptuous, um, bodies get pinged. Like it's, it's very interesting for me to see which photos, if, even if they're both censored, which one will get pulled down just for existing. And it's why I wanted to create the coffee table book. Yeah. Tell us what's the coffee table book. So the end goal is to create a coffee table book filled with these women's images and the poetry that they uh, have to write to their own bodies on day six and seven um, to essentially find a way of being able to get it distributed either via a publishing house or self-published because I'm so determined to have something that exists physically that can exist in people's homes that give opportunities for children to see normal bodies. Like I want my son to grow up not having this unreal vision or view of what a woman's body is and sexualizing it because he doesn't see any. Um, Like I just want my home to be filled with bodies because all bodies are normal. All bodies are beautiful and a body should not just be sexualized immediately for existing. So the goal is to be able to have a coffee table book so that women, people, everyone can see what the variety that exists within postpartum bodies. That's my end goal with this project. But the process that women go through with doing this, because there's a lot of shame that we hold around our bodies for some reason, Um, not everyone, but, you know, it can be very scary. It can be a scary space to um, take photos and look at our bodies as they are without being in a certain pose or in a certain way. How does this process help people work through that? For me personally, because I was in control of the photography, it was quite empowering for me. So it's also the reason why we start with a part of our body that People don't have many opinions on our feet to our knees. It's why I slowly move up the body. It's like we start with an area that, you know, society doesn't really have anything to say. Like they just don't have opinions on this. So most of us don't really hold that same uh, hatred or negative feelings or stress around that part of our body. And so it gives us the opportunity on day one to know what it feels like to play with these shapes and to like it really the – the most important 
thing that I always say to these women is not every day is going to feel good. It's about consistently showing up and doing the bare minimum because every day that you take a photo and be it the, the hardest day for most women is the belly breasts and back. That's what I find because of what society, how many opinions people have over our bellies. Um, and I think the reason why this project has done so well is because they're not taking photos. They're not the only one taking photos. They know that there is going to be another 20 people who are taking photos on the exact same day as them, having the exact same experience, sharing their feelings, showing up in whatever way possible. It's like, I don't always expect them to feel great about the photos that they've taken, but there's something about when you put it into a layout, when, which is when you put it into a little grid, there is a switch that happens for these women where they can suddenly see themselves as art. And that's been the really important reason for the way that I choose to lay out the photos and get them to take multiple photos from multiple different angles is because suddenly they're not just seeing themselves from one angle. They're seeing this part of their body from so many different angles at one time. And then when you zoom out and you look at it, it there's almost like this separation between me and the photos. So you finally get to see yourself from like a bird's eye view, which I think is really powerful for someone to get out of their inner, like you're getting out of your head and into your body essentially. And so it's, I, it's just kind of worked in a really like organic way of, you know, in the support pods, the women share that they're, they were finding it really hard. And the fact that they were able to take a few photos anyway. And then when they put it into the layout, even though when they looked at the photos solo, when they looked at each photo separately, they didn't love it. But then when they put it into the layout, they could find, there was like this light bulb moment for them. That's, I think, one of the reasons why it works so well is because it gives them the opportunity to see their entire body at once in these different angles and you can see yourself as art. And I think the really important part is that they are seeing themselves as art, not as a sexual, sexualized physical vessel. Back, 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 back in the day, curvy bodies, real bodies and all of that was celebrated in art. And then it's changed for modern day. It's like you, you become, you become the sculpture. You are the sculpture and something that I think they realize. And I realize when I took these photos is that it's the parts of my body that are the most feminine and that have the most texture and the most color and curve that photograph the most beautiful and have the most emotion and stories. And they create the most conversation. Like you look at them and you're like, they just, it's just so interesting to see and to look at. And I remember talking to one of the participants who was an artist and she was saying that in her art class, when they had to do live drawings, they never had a, the teacher never brought in a, like a model, like a traditional model because they're not interesting to draw. She, they always brought in bodies that had stories attached to them and had character and had, you know, they were just real bodies because they had so much, they were so much more interesting to draw and had so much more to say and took up so much more space in di like dialogue around them and the emotions that they were able to convey. And it was just really interesting that this gives people that opportunity to experience that for themselves. And I think because the body is, is the art, is the main focus in those situations, whereas the typical runway model isn't the focus, it's actually the clothes that they're wearing. I wonder if more it's maybe that that's why, but it's also not to say that, are, um, you know, women that are really skinny, you know, they also can feel very self-conscious about a skinny, skinny body. And so that's also another beautiful body that you are also still celebrating. It's so fascinating to see how within a support pod, every single person in that support pod, no matter what their bodies look like, what I've come to realize is that they hold the exact same stories of unworthiness. It does not matter if I see them and I see beauty. They cannot see themselves because they look at someone else and they see beauty. And so this is giving them an opportunity to give their body a chance to show them how beautiful they are. It's just so fascinating to see how we always have this grass is greener on the other side mentality. And I really want 
to create a space where the grass is green exactly where you are. This is a very different thing to what I've ever heard and seen, and it is something that definitely needs to be out there. So thank you so much for doing it. And I am going to enroll. I even said to my friend the other day, I was like, I have been following you and I've been fearful of it myself and been like, I don't know if I could do it. But she's like, it's going through the process and doing it where you will be able to come out the other side and go, oh, now I understand. For anybody who wants to join the project or follow you, can you let us know your social handles for both your personal and um, your project? Yep. So my personal page is the.edwina.masson. And then the Instagram for the Body of Art Project is a body of art project with a underscore between each word. Well, I will try and make it nice and easy for listeners and I'll add links to all of it so they can just click, click. They're there. (laughs) And the next round, round four, Uh, I think we'll begin on June 15th. And so enrollments will open two weeks before that. But if you follow the socials, you'll see everything. Um, And what I would say is that don't let that fear stop you from giving it a shot. Because for me, it's incredibly important for my child to see me taking the steps and sitting in that discomfort to try and love my body. Because I want him to love his body and to... I find it incredibly important to me to let him see me doing the work, even if it doesn't always feel good, even if it doesn't always have the, oh my gosh, I'm so in love with myself now. I want them and him to see me trying. Trying to make a big change in society. 100%. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This has been fabulous. I've really enjoyed listening to your story and being able to bond with you actually over having a very similar sort of story with um, our little ones in those first few months. Um, It's really nice to hear how people's birth stories are all different and their postpartum realities are all very different as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a such a pleasure to share my experience with you. Thank you for listening to Unscripted with Alex. This show was brought to you by Batika Co. 